Kermalitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And today we have with us in our studio, Tim Phillips, Managing Director of Tilt. Tim Phillips is a highly regarded industrial designer specialising in design for architects, creatives and the wider construction industry. He has extensive experience in architectural projects with a passion for using the latest technologies, materials and manufacturing techniques to bring the creative ideas of his clients to life without the constraints of traditional construction methods. As the owner of Tilt Industrial Design, Tim manages a dedicated team of industrial designers, fabricators, and engineers, pushing the boundaries to achieve commercially valuable designs that exceed client expectations. And when he's not doing that, Tim is also an educator and academic with an ongoing association with the University of Newcastle, the University of Technology in Sydney, and the University of New South Wales. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Tim Phillips. Thanks very much, Branko. Really pleased to be here. I'm really excited about the opportunity to talk about uh, who we are and what we do uh, for architects, landscape architects and artists. Thanks for having me. No problem. So explain, please, to me, because I'm not very bright, the role of an industrial designer in terms of how Tilt supports architecture and design outcomes, because, I mean, that's obviously where I'm I'm sort of focusing on. Um, You know, also, can you elaborate on, on you have a uh, really col- uh, creative collaboration with architects and artists and landscape artists. And well, could you sort of tell us about some, if you can tell us about some recent projects that aren't, aren't secret? I can do all of that, I hope. Um, I think the first point about you needing this to be explained is really interesting. And a large part of uh, my role as director of Tilt is providing an education to those specific industries, the architectural, the landscape architectural and the artistic industries about this potential for collaborating with industrial designers because it's not a common uh, concept. It's not something that people really understand, are familiar with because it's not traditionally how the world of architecture and construction works. And it came from me identifying that opportunity for the design skills that industrial designers have to contribute to those industries in a way that was not traditional. That probably happened about 10 or 12 years ago when we were working uh, on a project called One Central Park, which is a fairly prominent building in Sydney, Jean Nouveau, um, Atelier Jean Nouveau building. And I was working with a company called Canovations, who was engaged as an engineering consultancy uh, to assess the feasibility of translating solar technology into the architectural space. And it was the first time as an industrial designer, I really identified this gap in um, architectural process or construction process where they had an architectural vision and we had a construction team and we had this void between the two Uh, that was creating tension and and limiting possibilities. And as an industrial designer, I was able to inject my design skills straight in the middle and solve the problems for the architect, um, solve many of the challenges for the construction team and ultimately give the developers, the architects, the artists involved in the build team this amazing outcome through the skill set that I had as an industrial designer. 
And it was through working on that project, I thought this is amazing. Um, industrial designers traditionally design consumer goods and products. Um, that's that's what I know of the discipline. And then this opportunity in architecture to design something quite significant in respect to scale and quite amazing with regards to artistic and architectural outcome was just something that resonated with me. And I thought, that's what I want to do. So I, uh, through a process, I bought the business and changed it to be tilt and changed the vision of that company to solely focus on this potential for collaboration with architects, artists, and uh, landscape architects. And we have now for about eight years just been building on that opportunity, been educating the market on the potential um, and building a, a portfolio of examples to help communicate that potential. And um, it's really about identifying that skills gap or the process gap between architectural vision and construction capability and injecting ourselves, our design team into that space to facilitate uh, the vision of the architect or the artist and to give builders uh, the opportunity to bridge that documentation gap between the, the concept and, con and manufacturing. And that's very much the skill set of the industrial designer is 3D modelling, um, developing shop drawings for manufacture and then managing the manufacturing process of a product, however that concept is defined. And it's recognising that the architect can often conceptualise but not fully resolve. And the modern construction world is filled with design and construct contracts. So, in fact, there's this transfer of design responsibility from an architect to a builder, and they're not always capable of uh, filling that need. It's pretty long um, explanation, Branko, but that's where we sit in between the the vision and the outcome, um, injecting our design skills and manufacturing skills into the projects. An industrial designer, if you look at the marketing material from the universities, for instance, and the historic role of an industrial designer is to develop a product from the start to the finish. And that product is an independent object. And I know architects, when I ask them, have they ever worked with an industrial designer, the 5% of people that put their hand up say it's been in relation to a piece of furniture or some lighting. Yep. And these are, in fact, objects that are designed by an industrial designer, everything inside our buildings. And outside the buildings as objects has an industrial designer largely involved. But what we're challenging is this concept of what's a product design and, and why an architect can't use an industrial designer to develop part of a building. And it's not a standalone object. And most of the projects you'll see that we work on, are um, we apply a product design process to develop, but then the object that we design and manufacture becomes absorbed into the architecture of the building and then, in fact, becomes architecture. And you wouldn't know it's a piece of industrial design, uh, but that's our approach is to use an industrial design methodology to develop parts of a project that then become integrated into the architecture and so it's our skills complementing those of the architect and, and on occasions we develop standalone products no doubt about that but the area I see most potential 
is for parts of buildings. So an architect will come to us with a facade um, or retractable roof and something that's ultimately indistinguishable from the architecture, but the design skills they need to develop that are beyond their own and beyond that of the capability of a builder and their suite of trades that they use to achieve more traditional construction outcomes. And if we're to look at um, One Central Park as a great example, uh, there's all of the principles of industrial design applied to the products that we develop, but there's different materials, different manufacturing processes that we utilise that a builder might not be familiar with. And there's certainly the integration of many different materials and processes to produce the product that we developed for One Central Park, which is all of the mirrors attached at the cantilever of the um, the Western Tower there, sorry, the Eastern Tower. So there's 320 mirrors there, which are an outcome of mass production. Uh, but it's this mix of materials that really becomes difficult for a builder to manage. And they're traditionally um, breaking down an architectural document set into trades. So they have their concreting trade and they have their glazing trade and they have their steel fabricators. But when you ask them to mix a number of different materials together with really high tolerances to achieve an outcome, particularly if you add a motor to it, there's this uh, level of risk that uh, becomes obvious and that's when you get this tension between the architectural ambition and the construction risk. So our, our role is to, for the special features of buildings only, this isn't the whole building, this is the special bit that really identifies the, um, the project or provides a level of functionality or is extremely beautiful. And it's this special part where we say, look, we'll bring our design skills in, we'll help manage the risk associated with pursuing these creative outcomes. Uh, and we'll not just play a design role here, we'll take on the responsibility of making the product and delivering the product to make sure that the outcome um, is very closely aligned to the ambition. And that's also something that we do, which is perhaps different to the role of other consultants in architects uh, or the architectural process. So an architect does design, but doesn't necessarily manage the delivery. The risk is not always with them. A structural engineer might inform a design, but they're not responsible for manufacturing it. So they have a different perspective on uh, design. But when we're designing a concept with an architect, it's very much with the expectation we have this responsibility to deliver it, to make it to assemble it, to install it, and for it to work. So we have a different perspective on design um, whereby we can't skip steps or leave gaps um, to save time. We have to have this absolute level of resolution in the design to make sure that the product works. So in, in, in one way, you're almost like a UX designer for building. There's a lot of similarities um, between UX and, and what we do, and it's certainly a subset of industrial design. and we're very much fo focused on the user experience here. Um, the concepts that we work on are always developed by the architect. That's what's interesting to me. The origin of the idea uh, always lies with the architect. They can see the potential for a concept to deliver a great user experience for the residents of the, the building or the users of a, a space. 
you know, they have that creative moment. They can conceptualize a solution, but they don't have the design skills to detail it, or they don't expect that a builder has those skills. And I just see this as this sort of chasm almost between architectural ambition and construction reality, this natural tension that's evolved over decades of uh, inherently creative uh, discipline in architecture and a delivery mechanism which is somewhat limited in its capabilities. So you have this reoccurring tension between an architect, what they want to do desperately and what a builder says can be done right. because builders relying on trades a suite of trades to deliver these features. So as soon as you inject this level of risk or complexity into it, there's a need for a additional design resource to manage the risk. And that's where we're sitting as industrial designers is as a complementary resource to both architects and to builders. And I think it's probably equally balanced at the moment with who we work with or for Half our projects, we're talking directly to the architect about what's possible and how we could deliver it for them. The other half of our projects, we're being approached by builders saying, how the hell do we deliver this concept that an architect's conceptualised? There's no detail, there's no resolution. This is difficult and complex. So we work uh, most often as a subcontractor to the builder. Mm -hmm where we're responsible for delivering a component of their project, which is complex. And now design skills certainly align with what an architect is doing in that we practice 3D modeling. Um, but the real gap here is this production of shop drawings and understanding the potential for different manufacturing materials and processes to achieve outcomes that are not necessarily traditional construction, um, trade-based approaches to to building. Mm. I'm Branko Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions about industrial design? Those, those who know anything about industrial design understand that the discipline is about producing products. And there's uh, definitely, definitely an understanding that there's a limit to the size of a product that an industrial designer might consider developing. Okay. And that might relate to consumer goods or lighting and these types of um mass-produced products in particular um, that are sold as a proprietary product, a catalogue product. That is what 99% of the industry does as product design, and that's absolutely fine. But I don't think people, I don't think architects look at industrial designers and their skill set and their potential to deliver large-scale um, design outcomes that might not be mass-produced. So most of our projects are one-offs because they're a site-specific design concept and they're large uh, and they are inherently complex, but that's not a traditional perception of what an industrial designer does or is capable of. Most of the architects, when they consider an ambitious design concept default to a structural engineer, 
as a third-party design consultant to help them assess how a, a structure might be developed. But as I mentioned before, that structural engineer doesn't carry on a manufacturing responsibility or an installation responsibility. So they have this very different perspective on what design is. And they have quite a limited understanding of modern manufacturing and advanced materials and the potential for combining those to achieve an outcome. So I think there's this misconception about what we can help them with and how our skill sets, skill sets complement their own. Um, and then there's also this misconception that going to a structural engineer is the right design tool for um, unique architectural features, which would certainly benefit from the perspective of an industrial designer looking at different material options and different strategies. Um, and then that perspective is really more holistic because we're thinking about how we're going to make it, who's going to install it, and how much it's going to cost. Whereas a structural engineer's perspective may often but not always be more about the engineering limitations um, they need to consider. Are there any trends that you're noticing in property development uh, and architecture that are influenced how you actually deliver projects? You know, obviously, where I'm trying to trying to say here in, in, in a very sort of sneaky way is, what about sustainable design? Um, is that something that, that affects how you work and what you deliver? The most obvious trends in architecture are around the concept of sustainability or designing for environmental benefits. And most of the projects that we work on have an element of the design concept that's about addressing those concerns that an architect has for providing a sustainable outcome or providing a building design that offers potential benefits to the occupants from an environmental perspective. And for instance, sun shading, um, solar access, uh, ventilation, they're all design criteria for architects that influence design outcomes. We do a lot of work with architects designing bespoke louver systems uh, for both residential and large commercial buildings where there's an obligation to deliver certain performance when it comes to uh, mitigating sunstrike, managing heat transfer. And so we have a trend in the industry towards louvers. So there's either um, an approach by an architect that uses high-performance, double, triple glazing um, with internal sun shading as a default solution, or there's an approach to put a louver on the outside. Um, a lot of the work we're doing with louver designs is around bespoke uh, louver designs that provide the architects a unique aesthetic outcome. And this is where we have this architectural ambition for unique aesthetic collide with a performance obligation for managing solar performance um, of a facade system. And we get this opportunity to work with architects to um, deliver both of those outcomes. And that's what's exciting is if an architect defaults to a proprietary product when it comes to a louver system, they get a very generic aesthetic outcome. If they pursue an aesthetic outcome um, without uh, performance criteria, they're obviously not going to comply with a design. So our... Um, and most exciting projects at the moment are really around developing um, high-performance facades that deliver a unique aesthetic for the architects. And if we look at our project at UTS, their new library building with FJMT, 
that was a, a, a really exciting project for us where the architects had this ambition for a unique aesthetic and an obligation for performance. And we're able to work with them really closely to develop an outcome that achieved both of those. And that's something that they were really focused on delivering for their client. And they were able to work with Tilt um, and our design and engineering teams to deliver it. So concept of sustainability is often addressed in a facade design, getting a particular type of performance, but this uh, sort of undertone of ambition in design. We want something that looks beautiful, but it's got to perform. So that's when we we get a great opportunity to work with the architects. You know, up until maybe not so long ago, we've had, you know, functionality, you know, in terms of being able to just repeat designs over and over again, make it easy, make it, you know, you know make it simple, make it obviously cost effective. But maybe things are turning in the other direction where design, someone's actually worked out, geez, design, good design doesn't actually cost any more than, more than, you know, bland design and, cer- and certainly is much better than, than bad design. And maybe all sectors are now looking at the design and functionality as being something just important and not, and not just something as, as bland. So can I ask, so it's not just in, in, in construction, but you, you work in other areas too, um, and like other things. I mean, is there, a, is there actually a limit to what you, what, you know, industrial designers can actually do or achieve, rather? The three areas that we're working most in being architecture, landscape architecture and art all benefit from the same uh, industrial design process being applied to those industries. And they're not obviously unrelated. Intrinsic link between art and architecture is there as a result of public art policies. And we see developers have an obligation to deliver public art as part of their development applications. And in having that obligation, they're met with this challenge where they need artists. They need artists who can develop concepts of of value and they experience the same tensions with an artist as they might with an architect where there may be an ambition, but they lack the skills to realise that design within the traditional tool set that an artist has or that a building team has. So again, we're servicing the artists who wish to work in the public domain by giving them a design resource to help them build at the scale that um, public artworks demand to manage the integration of the artwork into the architecture, look at all of the design and engineering parameters. And ultimately a public art contract these days looks more like a designer construct construction contract than an artist uh, contract. And that, that's just the the natural evolution of the the public art policies that we now have multi-million dollar public art obligations and artists who are able to conceptualise solutions but not deliver on the outcome. And so Tilt is partnering with developers to help um, guide artists through that process. We're working directly with artists as part of artist teams to help them develop responses to public art briefs. And equally, we're engaged directly by, by builders to deliver on public art concepts. So all of the skills that we exercise in developing ideas for architects, we exercise in the same way for artists and exactly the same way for landscape architects. They're three 
uh, industries that have creatives throughout them, they all have the visions and they don't always have the skill sets to deliver on their ambition. So those three areas are all related and most of our projects these days will have an architect, a landscape architect and an artist involved as part of the project team and we're able to um, offer opportunities for true integration between those three sectors as well. We're working with uh, developer Toga at the moment. Toga Group has a hotel background. Um, they're doing a number of developments and we're working with them on Toga Central, which is part of the Tech Central uh, developments, working with their architectural team, Bait Smart, the landscape architectural team, Arcadia Landscape. Uh, and we're providing this opportunity to integrate public art into both the landscape and the architecture for them based on our understanding of manufacturing and construction. So we're trying to bring those three areas which are traditionally separated together um, and increase the potential for that outcome of public art to be integrated truly into the architecture and the landscape, um, which ultimately offers more value to the client, um, which may be the developer or it might be the residents in the, the architectural building or it might be people using the public domain. So, mm. so we're trying to... Um, bring our knowledge of design and construction to a place where those three disciplines who may feel unrelated are now uh, given the opportunity to, to blur the lines between art and architecture and landscape with an artistic outcome. Do you think there are industries where they probably could use some, uh, some creative or industrial design, but they're currently not? I see the discipline of industrial design as the learning of a process, and we call it the industrial design process. It's a way of thinking about problem solving that can be applied to any industry, and it doesn't need to be applied to a product. It's a process of understanding a brief, uh, doing research, developing a conceptual solution, moving through a detailed design phase, perhaps building something tangible or less tangible, um, and de delivering a solution that's focused on the end user experience. And, and that is a process that you can apply to a coffee cup, to a vacuum cleaner, yeah. um, to an experience uh, as much as an art outcome. And it's not something uh, that is taught a lot in universities. I think the university model is more about the education of traditional industrial design skills and the outcome being industrial designer working on mass-produced consumer goods. But that's changing um, to see the value in a way of thinking about problem solving. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at a problem or an opportunity, whether it's in the art space or architecture space, it's just about applying a process to that problem and figuring out what's the best outcome for the, for the client or the end user. From idea to installation, can you explain Tilt's approach to tactile design and why this includes focus or strong focus rather on, on craftsmanship? Well, working in the architectural space, it's very much a, a visual medium, I guess, for um, most people's experience with architecture, first and foremost, is a visual experience before it's a tactile experience. And that varies based on the scale of the job. But the process 
that we engage in is is fairly common. We are usually approached by an architect or an artist or a landscape architect with a concept, and that um, designer has a level of skill to be able to conceptualise a design that might be doing some 3D modelling, they might be doing some sketching or some other form of documentation to bring us a brief with a concept. Um, we essentially engage in a feasibility assessment as the first step, and that's looking at the idea, understanding the ambition, and forming an opinion on whether we feel it can be achieved, and if so, under what conditions. I always say that the two questions I get asked are, can you do this? And after I say yes, someone says, how much is it going to cost? And that's the exchange that I have every day, which is uh, always interesting. And it's regardless of the scale of the project, that's how it goes. Tim, can you do this? Yes. How much is it going to cost? And that's that's fun. Um, and every project has this commercial focus on it. You were talking earlier a bit about chief financial officers and the you know, expense of these things, but for every project, it's about offering value regardless of the cost of the the element that we're designing. And ultimately, it's the client's decision uh, as to whether they see value in what we're delivering and the architect can influence that. But ultimately, the client decides if they want to spend a million dollars on a retractable roof or not because they understand the value proposition. Um, so whilst cost is always a factor, and it's something we spend a lot of time doing is establishing the anticipated costs for delivering a concept. It's something that we can manipulate. So we have this exchange, an informal exchange around feasibility and cost. And then we will typically be engaged as a design consultant to uh, complete a design study. And that's a more formal exercise of feasibility. We're looking at all of the factors that might influence um, the success level of the outcome. So we might look at structural engineering, we might look at manufacturing opportunities, we might look at uh, install methodology. And we're basically developing that design to a different level. And it might be tender level documentation if we're supporting an architect and developing more accurate pricing for the delivery of that object. So if we say it's a retractable roof, the architect will bring us a sketch and say, Tim, I'd like to make this roof 10 metres by 10 metres slide back over the alfresco dining area, say, no problem, let's get in and do some design development. And we're looking at structural engineering, mechanical engineering, uh, control systems, glazing types, all of those sort of product-based um, outcomes and developing a 3D model, developing some shop drawings, the methodology for delivery. That's, that's where we act as a consultant. And at a, at a point where we've achieved a level of design resolution, um, that enables us to provide a fixed price for delivery to the client. We're typically novated to the builder. And then under a design and construct contract, we build and deliver the object, the element, um, whatever it might be, whether it's a piece of art or a facade, retractable roof or a floor that disappears. You know, uh, that process is pretty common across all projects. Okay, so in 2020... Uh, you won an Urban Developer Award for Australasia, a Winner Excellence in Construction Innovation, awarded for the UTS Central Sun Shading System, which is a, which is that um, the library building, central, mm. the central Park one, is it the one? 
Um, it's across the road from One Central Park. It's the Univers University of Technology Library. Oh, yes, yes, that's right, yes. Um, can you walk me through the through project, you know, um, give me the main points, but can I ask also, what did you learn from the project? We won the award on the basis of innovation in construction. Um, there's a few parts of that that we'd like to celebrate. One's obviously the aesthetic outcome that we deliver for the architects, this beautiful facade uh, that looks amazing and looks very distinct to any other concept that we've seen. It does. Um, we have to celebrate the performance of the facade in that it delivers on its um, environmental obligations with regards to mitigating sunstrike and controlling heat gain for the building. Um, what we see is the great innovation within that project. And it's also uh, an overall strategy for TILT is identifying existing technologies and then applying them to a new industry or a new application in an innovative way. And we're able to deliver that outcome for FJMT utilizing sort of very common parts. So it's delivering a unique aesthetic and a high performance facade with little risk. And that's what we see as the innovation in what we do for architects. We're not in trying to invent anything. Um, and that system where there's 108 louver systems and two thirds of them are motorized, we utilized a roller blind motor. So a type of roller blind that you have in any office building, commercial or residential that's motorized. Um, the brand we used was Somfy. But we basically unpacked a roller blind, took the motors out of the middle, and then utilised that technology to deliver the same type of reliable performance that a roller blind does, but we clad it in a very unique way. So the innovation is not invention. It's an application of existing technology in a new way. And by doing that, we're able to control costs, control risk, and then we flex the part of the design, which is the cladding, to give us the unique aesthetic so that the outcome is predictable. And that's a really important part of what we do in many projects is make sure that we manage the risk for architects and builders and developers as they pursue creative design outcomes. Because anything unique has an inherent amount of risk in it. But if we can't manage it, then no one's going to proceed with the design. So we have to find these innovative ways to manage risk. The biggest learnings from that project really come down to how we work with a builder to manage their perception of risk. Because for a builder to take on a contract that involves a highly creative component is very difficult. You know, they can, If you have the facade detail pop up on your risk register as a builder, you want to get rid of it. This again talks to that tension between architectural ambition and construction uh, reality is that something risky, um, something like a very bespoke mechanical facade is, is going to ring alarm bells at the, at the builder's office. So we need to manage the perceived risk and the real risk for a builder. And there's lots of different ways that we can do that. Uh, for us, we needed to consider the differences between construction tolerances. Let's say it's plus or minus 50 mil 
um, inaccuracy when you're building a facade on something that scale well tilt works at much tighter tolerances you might say plus or minus five millimeters so the builder was really worried about how we would integrate a highly resolved product into a facade that only achieves traditional tolerances so we had to learn or develop a methodology for managing that risk and it was a really exciting process of timing our design process in a way where we could wait um, until most of the building was delivered then we could do a, a 3d uh, point cloud scan of the whole building and then we're able to overlay our CAD model of our louver system with the as-built structure and then we could adjust our louver design to suit the the as-built structure before we started manufacturing anything. And that gave us this opportunity to adjust the size of the louvers to make sure that they fit the building tolerances rather than build our louvers, turn up on site, only to realise that one of us doesn't fit, which was the the big risk that the builder saw. It's like, well, let's develop a methodology here we, whereby we um, wait till most of the building's done, scan it, check your tolerances, adjust all our stuff to suit, then we'll go and make it. We'll bring you a product that fits perfectly into your building. And, that, and that's something we um, practice, is this identifying what the builder sees as risks and then developing a methodology to address it. So you, you manage and identify risk. What about managing and identifying technical innovation? Because let's face it, you're like on the, you're not only on the, on the cutting edge, you're also like on the cutting edge, but with with the need for over the horizon visibility, aren't you? So, um, how do you manage technical innovation? Well, I mentioned we adopt existing technology, so that's this is our way of managing innovation within architecture is to identify existing technologies from other industries and then bring them in, and that's common to many projects. I'll talk about One Central Park again um, because that project. Uh, a large part of that was identifying existing technology within the solar industry, uh, a technology called a heliostat, which was a sun tracking mirror. And that's at the heart of that project is existing technology repackaged for an urban application. And we took existing software and existing hardware from the solar industry. We brought it into an urban application and we modified it to suit that purpose for UTS and the facade there. We found the roller blind motors, we unpacked them and then we repacked them um, to suit that proposed application. And particularly with a lot of the moving structures that we design, we're borrowing existing industrial automation technology. And that helps us to manage risk. But in doing that, we're always introducing these new technologies to architects which they thought were inherently risky, but once they realise we're just borrowing that technology from a factory who, who uses it all the time, but it's going to unpack it and put it into your door, they start to feel like they're innovating, um, but we're doing that in a safe way. So we spend a lot of time looking for existing solutions in other industries that are proven, um, then have the capacity to be applied into architecture uh, in a safe or manageable way. You think there might need to be some changes in Australia's design industry um, for it to flourish? Um, do you, do you, are, are you actually um, addressing the, these, this need in, in, through your work and what, what you're going to do? 
one of the outcomes I'd like to see from what Tilt's achieving in architecture is a, a shift in um, education of industrial designers and architects and those working in the built environment as to this potential for collaboration. Um, it's possibly something we see more in European um, architectural firms where industrial designers are embedded as part of the design team. It's not something we see often uh, in Australian architectural firms at all. I can say 99% of the firms I go to do not have an industrial designer as part of their team. I think that needs to change. Equally, I think um, as the designer construct responsibilities increase for builders, we need to see industrial designers in construction like within the teams um, at Lendlease and Multiplex and Wattpack and these big builders who are charged with bridging this gap between architectural concept and construction. They have to have designers like industrial designers who can resolve details, who can explore opportunities for cost saving and efficiency in materials. Um, there's not enough utilisation of the skill set of industrial designers within the built environment outside of that product world where we're building product catalogues. Like the items there are just not great utilisation of it. I think we should see industrial designers in firms, um, both engineering and architectural, and we should see industrial designers inside construction teams. Speaking of changes, um, the the phrase on everyone's lips these days is AI, artificial intelligence. How do you think AI will, will affect industrial design? I've had a bit of a play with AI. I had raised a couple of questions for for chat to um, to respond to last week. So I'm, I'm just at the, the start of my experience with that particular type of AI, but we're looking at computer processing as having the potential to influence designers and how we work. And that might be seen in computational modeling, for instance, where you can write scripts and um, achieve design outcomes at a rate that you couldn't achieve with traditional design processing. And I think the speed of design iteration is going to be heavily influenced by, by AI um, in a way we're seeing computational modeling influence architecture at the moment where we're having complex algorithms um, propose design solutions to us based on the inputs that we give them. It's certainly a big trend in, in architecture and most obvious perhaps in facade design, but also in the design of building geometry to respond to those inputs around sustainability um, where you can control the number of the parameters uh, of a design process and then get multiple iterations proposed to you um, by a script um, or through AI. So I think that's where we'll see the biggest change is the, the rate of um, design development for different designs, the number of design iterations that can be considered in a short time frame, and probably the rate of collaboration between different designers who can influence the scripts and enable different outcomes to be influenced by many different things in a short time frame. Uh, to tell you what, it's making a huge impact in the world of journalism, I will tell you that. Tim Phillips, that was actually really interesting. Educational and, dare I say, well-designed. Tim Phillips, Managing Director of TILT, thank you very much for your time. Very glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about who we are and what we do. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Brank Homolytic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The 
and Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.